Hey everybody, Aaron Bishop here. Just wanted to let you know, I have written a book. It has been published and it is available now on Amazon.com. Name of the book is The Power of Passover, A Christian's Guide to the Festival of Redemption. If you want to know what Passover is about, just a really deep dive into the festival, into its history, and into why we're where we're at today. And even an instruction guide on how to hold your own Passover. It's got everything in it. So if you'd like to check that out, go to Amazon.com and search for The Power of Passover. And now we return you to your regularly scheduled program. I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine the fine details of Scripture and the text and use them as a pointer to larger truths. So as I began my study for this lesson, I discovered there was a problem with this week's Parsha. Now, if we follow the three-year Parsha cycle, as we're attempting to do, for some reason, the entirety of Parsha Yitro, uh, Exodus 18 through 20, in the one-year cycle, was also this week's Parsha for the three-year cycle as well. That's three entire chapters, and perhaps three of the most important and essential chapters in the book of Exodus, all crammed into one lesson. Now, that's too much for what we're trying to do here, so I made a command decision. We're going to split out these three chapters and take three weeks to go through them. We're going through this exercise of the three-year cycle in order to be able to dig into the text at a deeper level, and simply going through a one-year Parsha does not do that. So, here we are. Exodus is going to take just a bit longer for us to get through, though. I may end up taking a few of the shorter Parshas later and add them together in order to make up for this, uh, but I can already tell you that's not going to happen in the book of Exodus. We'll see if we can do some of that in the later books, but probably not. So this week we discover that Israel has made it to what is referred to in the text as the Mountain of God. They finally arrived at Mount Sinai, and they're going to be here, sheltered in place, as it were, until we get to Numbers chapter 9, which, if we stay on track from here on out, we will get to much later next year, almost a full year from now. From here on until then, we're going to see a transition in the text that we won't really get into until chapter 20, two weeks from now. But it's at this point that the focus of the text will switch from primarily narrative to primarily instruction. Now, there will still be a few narrative portions throughout the rest of the book of Exodus, but for the most part, it's going to be instruction to one degree or another. 
And so while we will experience a transition in how the story is told, the focus of the text is not going to change at all at this time. Because the book of Exodus has one unified theme in both the narrative and the instruction portions. It's not the escape of Israel from Egypt, but rather it is a continuation of the revelation of God's name to people who are in his covenant. It's a description of his character, his reputation, authority, power, nature, and more. It will continue to be revealed through the instructions that we're going to see him define for us. I would contend that Exodus is the greatest single revelation of the name of Hashem, as I've explained earlier, than any other book in Scripture. And this week it's no different. We see very little interaction with Hashem in this chapter. In fact, we don't see a single quote from Hashem present in this week's text, which, frankly, it's abnormal for the book of Exodus. And yet, in the midst of this, I believe that we can still see something of great importance that will launch us into the next few weeks. And that's this week's conundrum. We discover in this chapter that there is instruction given to Israel, and Moses takes this recommendation. But this instruction it was offered by a foreign priest. It's good instruction, but the advice that's offered by Yetro, I've heard a whole gamut of interpretation on what occurs here. I've heard well-meaning teachers say that Israel should not have followed Yitro's advice here in this chapter because it was an instruction given by man and not by God, or that Moses should have continued to do everything until God appointed elders in Numbers chapter 11, which is just as long away for us as it was for them. Now these tend to be the same people that contend that the synagogue system is false because it was developed in Babylon, and a whole host of other ideas that we're going to get into today. But I would contend that these instructions given here are just as much a revelation of God's character as the revelations that we read of in other places in the book of Exodus. Why? What is it that Jethro recommends? Jethro recommends a way of structuring the people in order to facilitate community. Now, why does he give these instructions? It's for the benefit of everyone. This set of instructions is not just for the benefit of Moses, but for the benefit of all of the people of Israel, especially those who sought justice. So even though what we're going to read today explores in some way the dynamics of human power structures, it also reveals something of great import that's very close to the heart of God. And as we discover this, we're going to see the theme this week is a continuation of something that we read from last week. And we'll also find a microcosm present in this week that is extrapolated and unpacked even more in upcoming weeks. So let's read this Parsha and then talk about these ideas and how they're represented in the text. Exodus 18. And Yitro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that Elohim had done for Moshe and for Yisrael, his people, that Hashem had brought Yisrael out of Mitzrayim. And Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law, took Zipporah, the wife of Moshe, after he had sent her back, and her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he had said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the Elohim of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moshe in the wilderness, 
where he was encamped at the mountain of Elohim. And he had said to Moshe, I, your father-in-law Yitro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. And Moshe went out to meet his father-in-law, and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their welfare, and they went into the tent. And Moshe told his father-in-law all that Hashem had done to Pharaoh, and to the Mitzrites for Yisrael's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them on the way, and how Hashem had delivered them. And Yitro rejoiced for all the good which Hashem had done for Yisrael, whom he had delivered out of the hands of the Mitzrites. And Yitro said, Blessed be Hashem, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Mitzrites, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Mitzrites. Now I know that Hashem is greater than all the mighty ones, indeed in the matter in which they acted proudly above them. Then Yitro, the father-in-law of Moshe, brought an ascending offering and other slaughterings unto Elohim. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with the father-in-law of Moshe before Elohim. And it came to be on the next day that Moshe sat to rightly rule the people. And the people stood before Moshe from morning until evening. And when the father-in-law of Moshe saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit by yourself and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moshe said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to seek Elohim. When they have a matter, they come to me to rightly rule between one and another and to make known the laws of Elohim and his Torot. And the father-in-law of Moshe said to him, What you are doing is not good. Both you and these people with you shall certainly wear yourselves out, for the matter is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it by yourself. Now listen to my voice, and let me counsel you, and Elohim be with you. Stand before Elohim, for the people, and you shall bring the matters to Elohim. And you shall enlighten them concerning the laws and the Torah, and show them the way in which they should walk, and the work which they do. But you yourself seek out from all the people, able men who fear Elohim, men of truth, hating unfair gain, and place these over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And they shall rightly rule the people at all times, and it shall be that they bring every great matter to you, but they themselves rightly rule every small matter. So make it lighter for yourself, for they shall bear with you. If you do this word, and Elohim shall command you, then you shall be able to stand, and all this people also go to their place in peace. And Moshe listened to the voice of his father-in-law, and did all that he said. And Moshe chose able men out of all Israel, and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And they rightly ruled the people at all times. The hard matters they brought to Moshe, but they rightly ruled every small matter themselves. And Moshe sent off his father-in-law, and he went away to his own land. So as chapter 18 opens, we're reintroduced to several characters that we'd met briefly before. First, there is Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, a priest of Midian. Now we know from the evidence in the text that Yitro is a priest who knows of Hashem. But we can infer from other information that Yitro, as the high priest of a nation of Midian, was polytheistic, or henotheistic at best. What's the difference? A polytheist is a person who believes in many gods who are more or less equal. You can pick and choose who you worship based on personal life circumstances and desires. You can honor one over the others, and it really doesn't matter. 
A henotheist, however, is a person who believes in many gods, but believes there to be a single god who is greater than all of the others. One who should be worshipped as the apex of deity, but also that other gods do deserve worship as well. That these other gods should not be ignored simply because one of them is the greatest. For henotheists, all gods deserve honor, but one god deserves the greatest honor over all others. Now, for us as modern monotheists, that seems abhorrent, but I would submit that this reaction comes from our own understanding of what monotheism is, which, at the time of this story, and for nearly a millennia after the event that we're reading of now, monotheism as we conceive of it is not something that entered anyone's mind. You see, Israel, at this point in the story, and to a greater degree after the death of Joshua, was henotheistic. They were not monotheists as we wish to paint them. That seems like a bold claim, but the case can be made from Scripture that this is an accurate view. Read Judges. It's all through there in, in little ways. All of the scriptural evidence points to this. What is the first of the Ten Commandments? Not that you should have only one God, but rather that you should not have any other gods before Hashem. Now, to some people, this indicates that there are indeed other gods, but that Hashem is the greatest God, and this is how it would have been understood by an ancient people. Or how about the title of God of Gods, as used in Deuteronomy 10.17, where it says, For Hashem your Elohim is Elohim of Elohim, and Master of Masters, the great El, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, nor takes a bribe. He is the God of gods, or as it is in the Hebrew, he is the Elohim of Elohim. Now this would seem to indicate that there are other gods, but that Hashem is the greatest of those gods. Or how about in the Song of the Sea, which we read just a few weeks ago, when it's declared in verse 11 of Exodus 15, Who is like you, O Hashem, among the Elohim? Who is like you, great in holiness, awesome in praises, and working wonders? Consider another example that David, the man who wrote many of our psalms and is the one who Messiah was in the line of, he had a teraphim, or as we've talked about in previous lessons, an image of a god in his own home. For Samuel 19, 12 through 13, it says, So Michal let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michal took the household idol and lay it in the bed and put a cover of goat's hair for his head and covered it with a garment. Now, I'm not making a claim or a statement that this is the way that things are in reality. I'm simply stating that this is the way that the ancient world thought about the spiritual world. Now, there is evidence in the Bible for both pure monotheism in many of the prophetic passages, but the evidence suggests that the society that this was given into was one that was henotheistic. I'm not entering into that debate with this teaching. I'm simply pointing out that practiced monotheism is a relatively new idea in the course of human history. In fact, the religious practice of Israel only became purely monotheist after they returned from Babylonian exile in about 400 BC. Most societies of the ancient world were polytheist or henotheist, and that remains true even today in many parts of the world. Now, why do I bring all of this up? Why is this even a thing that needs to be addressed at this point? Because all that has happened up to this point has been for a singular purpose. 
to reveal to the world what Yitro declares in verse 11 of Exodus 18. Now I know that Hashem is greater than all the Elohim. Indeed, in the manner in which they acted proudly, he is above them. Yitro, this polytheist priest, it seems, due to the testimony of Moses, in this moment, he becomes henotheist. He recognizes that Hashem is the preeminent God in the world. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Yitro. Now, the next people that we're introduced to are the family of Moses. There is Zipporah, his wife, who left at some point, which we're not told of. We do know that she was with Moses in chapter 4 while he was on his way back to Egypt, but that's the last we heard of her until now when she returns with her father. Then there's Gershom, Moses' firstborn, who the last time we read of him, he'd just been circumcised by his mother on the way to Egypt in that same story. And then there's Eliezer, a boy that we haven't read of at all until now. You see, apparently Moses had been separated from his family and essentially alone during the entire ordeal in Egypt. Sure, he had his brother Aaron, but Aaron was a person who Moses had not grown up with. He had no more connection to him than just his family ties. He had his sister Miriam, but again, he was not raised with her, and Moses hadn't known either of them for their entire adult life. Moses came into the Hebrew community as a stranger, and yet it was him who was sent to lead Israel to their redemption and to bring Israel out of Egypt. The entire time of the Exodus, Moses is pretty much alone. He has no real friends, only those who stand to gain by association. No one truly committed to him. The only family that he has is the family that was taken from him at a young age, and likely that he had not seen in decades. It was not until last week that we saw for the first time any real support coming to Moses from the community, from the people of Israel. I mean, Aaron's been there all along backing up Moses, but no one else has. Not until this existential threat descended on the entire community that needed more than one person to respond. Not until Joshua, until Hur, until the battle with Amalek do we see anyone else in the community of Israel begin to step up and to assist Moses in his calling, to begin to take responsibility for their own. And with the advent of this community support, we find a return of Moses' family support. Finally, once again, Moses is not alone in his family life. His wife and his sons have returned. He has someone to go home to, someone to care for him and support him in his task. And by the end of the chapter, we discover more of the elders of Israel being appointed to care for the community, to support the leader in his calling as shepherd to the community. And this is the very first steps taken by the people to engage in the calling that Hashem is laying on them. For the first time since this return to Egypt, Moses has people around him that are there for more than the role that God called him to. There are people that are there just for him, to support him and to care for him. And if there's one group that can call out a leader on his own crap, it's his immediate family. And we know from chapter 4 that Zipporah is more than willing to do just that, to call him out when he's acting in hypocrisy. So as they meet, greetings are made, and Moses tells the story. He shares the testimony of what Hashem had done for Israel, as we talked about last week. 
He shares the challenges that they faced in the wilderness. He shares the way that Hashem delivered Israel from every challenge. And it's this testimony that causes Yitro to make his declaration. Hashem is the greatest of all the gods. And with this declaration, Yitro presents an offering to Hashem. And in this offering, he invites Aaron, as well as the elders of Israel, to worship Hashem with him. The next day, Moses sits down to judge the people, and Moses is occupied in this task the entire day, morning until evening. No time with his newly arrived family, no time to do any of the other hundreds of things that should be done. His entire schedule is taken up with the disputes of the people. Yitro sees this, and he admonishes Moses for doing this. This is not good, he declares. You will wear yourself out. You will wear out this people as they wait on you all day and just for you to get to their case. This is too much for you to do alone. You need help. Well, last week we saw that Moses had help. He had support when it came to Amalek. When the fight came to the people and danger was immediate, he had people there to support him. But support to a leader cannot only be offered in times of danger. Leaders need support with the daily mundane tasks as well. And we saw this last week as Moses' hands grew too heavy for him to hold up, and the welfare of all the people depended on Moses' hands staying up. Yitro uses the same language here. He says, it's too heavy for Moses to bear alone. Moses needs support in this area in the same way that he needed support in the fight against Amalek. And the point being in both of these stories, that the leader cannot run a community alone. A leader should not run a community alone. To do so runs several risks. There is the risk to the leader of burnout or pride. But more importantly than that, the risk of the community burnout. The people themselves waiting on the leader to get done the thing that they think should be done. And so advice is given. Worldly advice from a polytheistic priest. So let me ask you a question. If a family member who does not believe the same way that you do came to you and offered advice on how to live your life or how to run your local community, would you listen to them? Or would you reject them out of hand simply because they're a, quote, pagan? Would you shoulder the burden and continue on alone because God gave you this task? I have a feeling that too many of us would turn our backs on Jethro and continue in the way that we had known up until then. No change, nothing different. The directive was not straight from God, and so there's no need to listen, to obey, or even to consider sound advice. Fortunately for Israel, Moses takes Jethro's advice. He appoints men to assist with the judgment of cases in Israel. And these men he chooses according to certain characteristics. They had to be able men. They had to have ability in their body, mind, and frankly their schedule to act in this capacity. They had to fear God. Now does this mean that they had to fear Hashem specifically or simply to have respect for the gods? Because they had to fear Elohim. Don't really know. The people of Moses' day, I think, would have heard it the second way. They had to respect the supernatural. And third, they had to be men of truth. 
Now, this word is used throughout Scripture, and we usually associate the idea with a person not telling a lie. But the idea of truth, scripturally, it goes so much deeper than just the words that come out of your mouth. A man of truth in scripture is one who is faithful to do what he says that he's going to do. He's a person who lives his life according to the words that he speaks. He is a man without hypocrisy in his life. And fourth, they had to be men who hate unfair gain. Getting rich off the backs of others through cheating or stealing or even in scripture usury, interest on loans, was not to be allowed. And it was men with these qualities who were to be appointed as judges, and they were to rule the cases of the people of Israel. Moses, on the other hand, was to continue in his role of leadership. It was still his job to enlighten the people concerning the laws of the Torah of God, and he still had the last say on any matter of judgment that was too great for those who were appointed. But the heavy lifting? The heavy lifting was shuffled off onto the backs of others who were capable of bearing that burden. Men who were appointed were living up to the calling of the Torah. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens, and so complete the Torah of Messiah. What's being established here is a formula for organization that's still in use today. I mean, corporations use this formula to a degree. The military uses it in near-exact execution. Our court system mimics this structure in many ways as well. You see, sometimes things from the world do at times have a place in our own application of worship. We must have wisdom and discernment to know which things we can or should apply to our own individual communities. The structure laid out here, it works for Israel. It saves Moses from burnout. It saves the people from having to stand in line for days to get a simple decision on small cases. It provides order to people who are living without any structure. Now, there are some who in the same way point to the synagogue system and call it pagan because it originated while Israel was in exile in Babylon. It's something that we don't read of in the Hebrew scriptures, they say, and there's no command for the communities of Israel to organize in this way. It's an addition of man, and so the charge comes that we should not work within a synagogue or a church system. This outlook says the same thing about Purim, which was declared by a Persian queen. It's not specifically instituted in the Torah. It's not in the Torah, so in this view it is adding to the Torah. Then there's Hanukkah, which is only found in one verse in the New Testament, and it's not even explicitly stated that Yeshua was in fact celebrating Hanukkah in that verse. And the appointment of that holiday is in the apocryphal books of Maccabees. Again, it's not Torah. So, celebration of Hanukkah, it's adding to the Torah, right? I submit that this outlook, it's rather limiting. And frankly, a bit foolish. Uh, to find out more about my view on the institution of these new holidays or adding things from the world into our own practice of worship, listen to the podcast special that I put out back at Christmas. Anyway, it all comes down to a central idea that's foundational to any understanding of the Torah. This idea is represented throughout Scripture, yet we never see it explicitly stated. And we're going to talk about this a lot more in the future, but I want to introduce it now. It's an idea that's referred to in Matthew 23 as the weightier matters. And I'm going to submit that there is a weightier matter that is at play here in the text. And that is the main theme of this week's Parsha. 
kingdom building. You see, building a nation that is composed of people from all nations is one of those things that requires a bit of allowance for things that we don't agree with or understand. Paul speaks on it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, 23-33. says, Let no one seek his own, but each one that of the other. You eat what is sold in the meat market, asking no questions because of conscience, for the earth belongs to Hashem and all that fills it. And if any of the unbelievers invite you and you wish to go, you eat whatever is set before you, asking no question on account of the conscience. And if anyone says to you this was sacrificed to idols, do not eat it because of the one pointing it out to you, and on account of the conscience. For the earth belongs to Hashem and all that fills it. Now I say conscience, and not your own, but that of the other. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for what I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the honor of God. Cause no stumbling, either to the Jew or to the Greeks or to the assembly of God, as I also please all men in all matters, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they might be saved. Now the word translated in this passage as conscience is the word sunidasis, and it describes a person's thoughts that discern the difference between what is acceptable and what is not. And Paul speaks about giving allowances to others based on what they deem to be good or evil. He basically says that when you go to the butcher, don't ask questions about whether the meat cutter was used for a ham earlier in the day, for the sake of the person cutting your meat. When you go to eat at the house of a pagan and they serve you that Thai dish, and you see that little Buddha on the shelf, don't reject the food from their hand of the host. For their sake and for the sake of the kingdom, Building the kingdom is the weightier matter of the law. If your neighbor turns to you and says, Oh, I saw them purchase this meat at a halal certified market. Well, then reject the food for the sake of the person who's pointed this out to you and who knows your religious affiliation and who may have problems with people eating that. At no point in this diatribe, though, is Paul telling people that it's okay to eat unclean meats. That topic isn't even on the table. For discussion in this passage, he is clearly addressing foods that may have been sacrificed to idols and nothing else. Throughout, Paul makes the point, everything that is in the earth belongs to Hashem. It's all his. Meat itself is not tainted. Clean meats themselves are not tainted simply because they were offered to an idol. It was created by God for us to eat. And if we eat it with thankfulness to Hashem for our food, and we are seeking to increase the kingdom of God, then who can possibly denounce us for partaking or not, as our own conscience allows? Now this little lesson, it's a pointer to a greater truth. When you're fully engaged in seeking first the kingdom of God, then some of the things that may have been a bad idea or off-limits in just your own limited life, may suddenly become acceptable for that greater purpose. Food that may have been sacrificed to idols and you don't know, if you're acting as an ambassador for the kingdom of God and your conscience is clean, then eat. What this does not say is if you see someone engaging in something that you have identified as pagan, that you should then point it out to them. 
that you should get angry at them for not doing things the way that you think they should be done or being obedient as purely as you are. It does not say that the body of Messiah should be separated from one another over a debatable thing, or that you should attempt to get together and choose only one way of doing things and all other ways are to be discarded. Building a kingdom that is populated by people that are from every possible nation and background and understanding requires that we make allowances for differences of opinions in our midst. We all agree on what is important. Yeshua is our Messiah and His blood covers our sins. This is the one thing that should unify all that are Hashem's. This unifies us more together than the Torah does in every way. And in this we discover that we who keep the Torah but recognize Yeshua as Messiah, we are much closer in our ideology to Christians than we are to Judaism. We who believe as well that the Torah is still applicable to our lives, but we do not have a single set halakha or way of living out the commands that is to be imposed upon all. We may have differences on how the Torah is to be applied, but many of these differences are debatable matters in many ways. Some of the lighter matters of the Torah are superseded by the command to build the kingdom of God. What united the twelve tribes of Israel in the wilderness? Their God and their goal. We must take that same approach. We have been called to build the kingdom of God, and we see Israel beginning that practice in this week's text. Now there's one other thing that I'd like to point out before closing. Aparsha Yitro, this chapter and the upcoming chapters in Exodus all begin a process that we're going to get much deeper into beginning next week. This process is something that provides a great depth of meaning for all who are his. And we see an introduction to this topic in this chapter, and it's hidden in the narrative. As the chapter begins, what's the first thing that occurs? Moses' wife returns to him at Mount Sinai. They're reunited, and their covenant is in some ways reestablished at the mountain. And this is what we're going to find as we proceed. These next few chapters in Exodus, chapters 19 through 24, are steeped in the language of a Hebrew wedding ceremony. We're going to explore this connection in a much greater detail in the upcoming weeks. The people of Israel in this story, they are the bride. Hashem is the husband who is bringing them into covenant with him, and the bride is being brought to the mountain by a man who lived in Midian. The chapter begins with this microcosm of the story that we're about to enter into in a much larger way. Zipporah as the symbolic placeholder for the people of Israel, this bride from the nations who was brought to her bridegroom at Mount Sinai. Yitro as the symbolic placeholder for Moses, the man who cared for the bride and brought her to the mountain to meet with her husband, and Moses as a symbolic placeholder for Hashem, the one who is at the mountain to receive his bride, and the one who is to give knowledge and instructions to the people from the mountain, this righteous judge of the people who appoints others to judge in his stead with righteousness. This chapter is one of those chapters that not only presents within itself an important lesson for us to learn from, but which also acts as a bridge between what has come before and what is about to come. And we'll see this happen at least once again in the course of the book of Exodus, at the end of this wedding narrative and just before the tabernacle instructions, as chapter 24 serves as a very similar bridge, closing off the wedding narrative, but also in a way 
hinting and alluding to the tabernacle narrative that is to come. So as we wrap up chapter 18 of Exodus, we'll see that there is a lot going on in this chapter. So much that's easily missed out on, and some of those things that are very much in your face. But the whole chapter, just as the whole book of Exodus, is about one thing, building the kingdom of God. It is a process that must be engaged in, and it's not something that can be done by any single person. Building the kingdom of God, it's a community exercise. Everyone must be engaged to one degree or another. If left to a single person, the entire thing will fail. And in this process of kingdom building, there is some wisdom from the world that may assist us in this task. In the same way, there are some things in the lives of those who we fellowship with that we may not agree with completely. We have to allow for differences of opinion and interpretation. We must allow God to work in people as He sees fit. We must be very careful of imposing our own understanding of God's instructions upon others. For the sake of conscience, it is best for the kingdom if we keep that to ourselves and focus on what does unify us, Yeshua, and His sacrifice on our behalf. For only through Him can we hope to find life as we dereshchai, as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.